Good morning. Welcome to Crosspoint. Sorry if I'm a little flustered. Greg Fields smacked me on the backside about two seconds ago as I was walking up here. That's never really been a way I've started a sermon before. And uh, thank you. It was uh, exhilarating and encouraging. Hopefully the Holy Spirit moves through that. Um, but we are, we're glad you're here. If you're a visitor this morning, we want you to know we count it a privilege to worship with you. And what we just sang as a congregation, we believe fully. God is, God is all. The things we addressed this morning go nowhere, if not for power that comes from God. And if, as we're talking this morning about the authority and the power that rests in a gathered congregation, we have none of it, if not for him. So we want you to know, as you're gathering with us as a guest, that uh, this is all about our Lord. Not about us. It's all about our Lord. There's a lot that could sound like it's about us this morning, and we want to make sure it's very clear at the beginning. Without our Lord, we are absolutely nothing. But in him, some remarkable things happen. Before we get to all that, I want to encourage you all. This little book, Understanding the Congregation's Authority, is something. We've got them in a stack right there on the kiosk. That's a visitor kiosk, by the way. At the end of the service, um, if you're visiting, you can go there and get some information about how to get plugged in and know what's going on around here. But these little books, um, we're asking for $5 just to offset part of the cost. But if $5 keeps you from the book, just, just get one and take one. They're really helpful in reading through some of the things that we're preaching through for anywhere from maybe 8 to 12 weeks in this ser sermon series. So I want to encourage you to do that. Before we uh, pray and jump in, uh, I think it is very fitting for us to be aware of the people who are around us this morning. So y'all stand and y'all greet each other. Hug each other's necks. Make sure everybody feels welcome. Go ahead and make your way back to your seats. Let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. You are great and greatly to be praised, and this gathering is all about you. Lord, specifically this morning, we want to do as we try to do every week and pray for another church, and we pray for Ridgecrest. We pray for Matt Beasley as he's preaching this morning that you would speak mightily through him. We pray for all of their, their elders and their leadership that you would bless them abundantly. And Lord, we continue to pray that in Greenville you would uh, just kill any spirit of competition that continues to exist between churches. I'm so thankful to have brothers just a few miles down the road um, on the same team, uh, serving the same God. I pray that you would help us to, to work to preserve the unity that, that we all have in Christ. Lord, we're thankful for what you've done in our body this weekend. It's been a sweet weekend with two weddings. We pray for the newly founded Caldwell family and the newly founded Dunning family. And as they are um, celebrating their marriages in a way, I pray that you would bless their time and encourage them. Lord, this morning as we talk about what it means to be a priestly people, please give us wisdom and insight that we would otherwise not have. We humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This is week three of our series titled Elder-Led Congregationalism. Now that's a mouthful and we're hoping it becomes more and more familiar every time we say it, Elder-Led Congregationalism. In our first week, we established four extremely important realities when it came to this topic and what kind of authority exists in the local church and who has what kind of authority. What we've learned is that authority is not just one kind of thing, but it's more like a pie that you slice it and the authority has, the, the congregation has a type of authority, the, the elders have a type of authority, the deacons have a type of authority, parents have a type of authority, heads of households have a type of authority, so we have to look at it a little differently. But for our church, for the gathered people, the first thing that we found and the most important is that King Jesus is the head of the church. If this is your first week with us and you're thinking, oh, I missed the first two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the first two pretty quickly. King Jesus is the head of the church, and if we don't start there, you can guarantee we will mess everything up after that. If we think that maybe we're the head of the church, if the, if the elders are the head of the church, or if um, charter members are the head of the church, or if a certain sect of deacons are the head of the church, we'll just mess things up. King Jesus is the head of the church, and we start there. And as head of the church, he gives elders the authority and the responsibility to lead the church. He gives deacons the authority and the responsibility to serve the church. And what we've been looking at last week and this week is he gives the gathered congregation the authority and the responsibility to bind and loose regarding what the gospel is and who the gospel people are. Last week, we began to look at the second half of that phrase of elder-led congregationalism, the congregationalism part. Now, that word, I don't want to do a show of hands because it might be depressing, but that congregationalism makes some people cringe. They just have bad memories of votes that went bad on something that was inconsequential, like the color of the paint or the carpet, and there was division. And I want to make it abundantly clear that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about congregationalism. We're talking about the authority of those who make up the congregation of the local church or the gathered church. It's about far more mission than it is how meetings go. We went all the way back to the beginning in Genesis, and we considered what God has revealed through his covenant with creation. Covenant is an important thing in the Bible. God has chosen to relate to us covenantally. And what that means is simply that God from the beginning created mankind in his image and said, I will be your God and you will be my people and this is how that relationship is going to go. It's all on his terms. We don't sit to negotiate and say, well, I'd like a little more of this, a little less of this. No, no, no. In a covenant, this is a divine covenant on God's terms. That's how he relates to us. I will be your God, you will be my people, and this is how it's going to go. For us sitting here today, it makes a lot of sense to go back through these covenants and pick up some important details about our current job description as priest kings. Again, that is priest kings. If you're sitting here today, what we established last week is that you, in Christ, are restored to that Adamic office, and you are called to be priest kings, to do priestly work and to do kingly Work, which, if you're like me, that sounds really intimidating and high and lofty. So, we need to understand exactly what it is if, in fact, we're trying to understand what authority God has given to the gathered church in Jesus' name. So, in the Adamic, co- the Adamic covenant, we saw Adam given the job description of working and keeping the garden. This is what we considered last week. He was called to work and to keep the garden, which, as we dug deeper, found to be the beginnings of what it means to be priest kings. Adam was to guard the dwelling place of God from that which was unholy while promoting that which was holy and in doing so increased the boundaries of the garden, thereby increasing 
the glory of God throughout the earth. This was God's plan for all of humanity. Adam was the first every man, and that was the plan for every man, that we would guard against that which was unholy, that we would promote that which was holy, that we would work and keep this garden, and it would grow. And as it grew, the righteousness of God would be known throughout all of the earth. But one thing got in its way, sin. Sadly, Adam failed. As you're reading what, he, what God had put together there, you're thinking, oh, this is a great plan, this is so good. But then you see the serpent come in and tempt them, and they fall for that temptation. And Adam failed and plunged all of humanity, all of us, into ruin and death, into a desperate need for someone to redeem us from our sad state. But in that covenant, like every covenant that he makes, this is an important theme, God remained faithful to his purposes even when Adam did not. Then we saw the Noahic covenant where the world was given another chance through Noah and his family being spared through the flood. What we did is we climbed into that story and we found that right before the flood, God looked down on the earth and there couldn't even be a good intention found. That's a bad spot. We considered what would it be like if just in this room right now, God couldn't even find a good intention, much less actual holy living, where if he, as he climbed into our minds and our hearts, every intention was even evil. That was the state of the earth and it said that God was sad. In his heart. So, in this Noahic covenant, we see Noah and his family spared through the flood. God reinstalled Noah into the office of priest king, telling him, like Adam, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, doing all that God commanded. And unfortunately, Noah showed up to work drunk. That's right. If you haven't read that part, that actually happened. He got drunk and he passed out naked in his tent. It's like the redneck nightmare. And, and it was a really low point for humanity. He's given this authority, he's given this power, and he shows up and, and he messes it up almost immediately. Instead of planting a garden and sharing the, the excess with his brothers and sisters, he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk on the wine rather than fulfilling the job description he had, be, he had been given. He, like Adam, misused the authority from God. It was a real authority, but he misused it. And he, like Adam, abandoned the responsibility that God had given him. But again... God remained faithful to his purposes even when Noah did not. The third thing we saw last week was the covenant that God made with Abraham. You see, Abraham, like Noah, was reinstalled into that Adamic office of priest king, but this covenant was a little bit different. Where Adam was given commands, Abraham was given promises, which are sweet promises from our Lord. Promises to fill the earth like the sand and the stars promises to bless every nation of the earth through the lineage of Abraham. What we found was that God's plan through Abraham was a covenant where God would create a people for his own possession. God through Abraham would create a people who would fulfill those original creation purposes that we saw with Adam and then again with Noah, a people who would reign and rule, a people who would bind and loose, a people who would hold fast to what is holy and reject that which is not, thereby representing God to the world as image bearers. Galatians tells us that in Christ, the promises made to Abraham apply to us today. God has done something through Abraham that affects you as you sit here today if, in fact, you are in Christ. Because God will continue the priest-king work through Christ, who perfectly fulfilled both roles of priest and king. And in doing so, reinstalled each of us to that office. This morning, we're going to begin to look at 
two more covenants. Our focus this morning, we're going to begin to look at two more covenants, the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. And hopefully in doing so, we can learn even more details about our job description in Christ as priest kings. So if you're taking notes, you're, you're wanting to write down things that, that help you to understand what you're supposed to do as we kind of do a sort of a scavenger hunt almost through these covenants to figure out what is God's design for us as priest kings. The Mosaic and the Davidic covenants continue the theme of God's faithfulness to his plan and his people. But in them, we find something new, something that we didn't find in the previous covenants. We find uh, God doing something different and unique with the offices of priest and king. So we've been, we've been looking at priest-king, what do we do, how does this work, and in the Mosaic and Davidic covenants, God does something different with priest and with king, something that would serve the purpose of helping us to understand more thoroughly what God intends for his people to do through each of those offices. God does something special through the Mosaic covenant to help us understand the priestly role, And he does something special through the Davidic covenant to help us understand the kingly role. So what we're going to do is we're going to take our lead from God. We're going to focus on the Mosaic plan for priests this week. And next week we will focus on the Davidic plan for kings. Turn to Exodus 19 as we look at the Mosaic covenant. Exodus 19, verse 4. And we're not going to do a whole lot of turning this morning. As you talk about covenants, you kind of have to paint a picture with words. And so it's important to listen closely. I want you to know that um, a group of men gathered here this morning to pray over this pulpit and over every one of these seats to make sure that you could um, have, be as distraction-free as possible. So as we sort of paint this picture with words, as we look at just a few passages, our hope is that the Lord would show you something beautiful. Exodus 19, 4 through 6, the Mosaic Covenant. 19 verse 4. Before I read it, let me give you a little background. Very important. Before we look at the specifics and we look at verse 4, we need to familiarize ourselves with the significance of this moment for Israel, okay? Before we read it, we need context. A few hundred years before this moment, Israel was experiencing the blessing of God's covenant with them. Israel was getting big. They were growing in number, and they were in Egypt and had grown significantly in number like the sand and like the stars that had been promised through Abraham's covenant. Their blessings and growth from God resulted in the Egyptians being filled with a fear of them. And in the beginning of the book of Exodus, Egypt enslaves the Israelites to make sure that the Israelites don't overtake them. So imagine the picture. Israelites are in Egypt because of what happened at the end of Genesis and through Joseph and through the blessing. They were brought back and they're in Egypt and they're multiplying because God's keeping his covenant promises. And the Egyptians are like, oh dang, there's a lot of them. We need to enslave them so essentially so that they don't enslave us and take us over. And so that's what they did. And this was no small thing, this slavery. For over 400 years, Israel remained enslaved until God, through Moses and this Mosaic Covenant, brought his people out of Egypt and freed them from their oppression. This is our setting for the morning. They have been brought out. At this point in their journey out of Egypt, they have been spared through all the plagues. They've seen some of the craziest stuff that anybody has ever seen on earth through the plagues. They've been spared through all of them. They've partaken of the Passover meal together. They've been guided through the wilderness through a pillar of cloud and fire. They've crossed the Red Sea. 
The water split and they went across. Unreal experience here. They've eaten bread from heaven, the form of manna. They drank water from a rock. And after experiencing their first victory in battle against the Amalekites, they find themselves in this setting. They find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, being prepared by God for his presence among them, through which they will receive the Ten Commandments and all the law. And in this setting, we will pick up in verse 4, and we hear, Now therefore, or in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is saying in this setting, I took you out of Egypt, I showed you amazing things, all so that I could bring you to me. I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, again, relating to us covenantally, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Just consider what it would be like to hear this from God. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And look at what they say in the next two verses. So Moses came, called the elders of the people, set set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, what? All that the Lord has spoken we will do. A good plan, a good response. This is a beautiful There's four important things that happen in the Mosaic Covenant that we see here. And the first one is this. The first important point this morning that we see in this Mosaic Covenant is that the individual office became a corporate office. The individual office that Adam was given as a priest king has now become a corporate office as they are being called a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The individual office has become a corporate office. Now, why does that matter? You might be thinking, well, they gather, it's corporate. What's the difference? This means that the office that existed for each individual follower of God would now belong to the gathering of those individuals. You see the difference? Listen really closely. This is an important point. This means that the individual office that existed for each individual follower of God would now belong to the gathering of those people. They have gone corporate. The office was not for people in their individualness, but for people in their gathered godness. Let me say that again. This office now changed through the Mosaic Covenant, and rather than being for people in their individualness, it is now for people in their gathered godness. They would not represent God as individual priest kings, but as a nation of priest kings or a kingdom of priests. Now, again, import your senses. Climb into this moment at the base of Mount Sinai before they receive the Ten Commandments and the law. If you were an Israelite, that had been brought through all the things that we've mentioned this morning, all those plagues brought out by pillar of cloud and fire, crossed the Red Sea, eaten the manna, drank water from the rock, had victory in battle. If you were an Israelite that had been brought through all those things, and if you found yourself standing at the base of Mount Sinai, being prepared by your leadership for the presence of God, and as God's presence drew near, you were told that you, as a people, would be God's treasured possession out of all the people of the earth, How would that make you feel? 
Imagine if we were just gathered here this morning and you had never heard that and you hear from the Lord, you are my treasured possession from all the earth. All the earth is mine and you are my treasured possession. How would that make you feel? What would that do to you? As you look around at those who are with you, what impact would that have on you? What would your thoughts be? Would you focus only on your personal relationship with God? Or would you begin to see your brothers and sisters, your fellow Israelites, maybe a little differently? What I mean is this. If you as a people are God's treasured possession, is it even fitting to focus on your own, only on your own personal relationship with God? Is it not more fitting to also treasure those whom God treasures? As an Israelite, I can't imagine that they'd be sitting here saying, well, God treasures these people, but eh, I'm calling them optional. I'm neutral on the matter. I think something must have happened in that moment to treasure those whom God treasures. Think about what you do with anything that you treasure. Anything you treasure, you keep track of it. You treat it with delicateness and value. If you treasure something, you prioritize it over other things that you see as less value. You give it your time. If you treasure something, you give it your energy. If you treasure something, you give it your thoughts. If you want to know what you really treasure, take a catalog of your thoughts and what you think about all the time. How is it any different if God's people are a treasured possession to one another? This is a significant moment for the people of God in this Mosaic Covenant. How is it any different if God's people are treasuring one another? What better way to image your creator than to value who he values, calling his people your treasured possession also? I can't help but think in that moment that people began to look around. Like, treasured possessions? Wow, that's a big title. We're treasured from among all the people of the earth. I mean, I can't imagine that they wouldn't begin to look around there at the base of Mount Sinai not even ours to delegate. It comes to you through Jesus. The power you have is not being delegated to you from the elders. Rather, it is yours in Christ by the power of God. He has deputized you to fulfill this role. And rather than feeling unsure or intimidated about your responsibility, that's some of what I've heard in response to last week. Oh man, that sounds pretty heavy. Rather than feeling unsure or intimidated, we hope that this reality of deputized power rightly empowers you to wield the keys of the kingdom wisely because they belong to you. You should feel empowered because that power belongs to you. I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I struggle with not feeling like I have any power at all, any ability to do anything good at all. I struggle with my flesh, and I'm assuming you do as well. There are times where I feel like all of my efforts could not be more futile. There are times where no matter how hard I'm trying to do the right thing, it seems like I miss something or I just screw it up. I just mess it up. and I don't do what I was hoping I would do. And in those moments in our insecurity and in our fear, we can become a people who focus too much on our own weakness and not enough on the power of God, which is made perfect through our weakness. Some of us are so comfortable with that being the case for other people. 
I love it. And uh, when I see in others the power of God made perfect in their weakness, but I hate my weakness. I hate when my weakness shows through and, it, and it's revealed that, that uh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling in my flesh. I'm, I'm a person. I desperately need Jesus, but I don't want anyone to see that. The reality is we can become so focused on our weakness that we lose sight of the power of God that's being made perfect through that weakness. Remember, we are not deputized individually, but as a people. And so there's some encouragement in what that creates as we're gathered as a people and deputized with his power from him, not delegated. If we have deputized authority, then we're given power by God who identifies with us as his own. He says, you are my treasured possession. As you do these things I tell you to do, you are pleasing me. You are mine. You belong to me. And we have God to guide us through what we need to do via the headship of Christ, through the power of the breathed out word of God, which he gives us elders to teach and preach and lead us. And he gives us deacons to serve us and bring some order to it. And he gives us each other to daily work on how to best stay in step with the gospel. He gives you one another to help you stay in step with the gospel along with all those other things. So our hope this morning is that you would be encouraged. Because your power comes from God. As a deputized people, you should feel empowered. This is so much more than a pep talk. This is a divine reality that exists for those who are in Christ. Turn to Deuteronomy 4. There are three... For our third point this morning, there are three distinct characteristics that are developed by God through the Mosaic Covenant. We're gathering details about our job description as as priest kings. And as we get to Deuteronomy 4, we see three more distinct characteristics in 4 verses 5 through 8. Now, this part of Deuteronomy very closely reflects that part in Exodus that we were just in in 19 and 20. And in verse 4, in chapter 4, verse 4, or verse 5, it says, See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Listen to what is said here. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom, and that will be your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Others are watching as you do what I tell you to do, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation, this treasured possession of God, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us? They're encouraged by the nearness of God whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I will set before you today? The three things are this. First... In these verses, what we find in this Mosaic Covenant is Israel would be identified with God, and in being identified with God, they'd be a witness to the nations. It wasn't only about Israel, but as a treasured possession, something like was promised through Abraham would come to all of the world. And as they heed God's righteousness and try to walk in it through the law, and as they cry out to God and he's present with them, they will be a witness to the nations. If you don't care about the nations, now's a great time to start. This is God's plan. The way you are as a people is meant to affect people who are not a part of you so that they may become a part of you. The second thing is that Israel would strive to cultivate and grow 
the righteousness of God among themselves. They would try to cultivate that righteousness through the adhering of the law. And they would look at it for themselves. They would do that for future generations. There was a generational perspective here. And then they would have a mind towards all who were observing what God was doing with them. The third thing, Israel would do this by consecrating themselves to the law of God. And what we would see is what's called sort of a, uh, a, we'll just call it an extremely in-depth, painstakingly detailed ceremony where every person, every tent, every utensil, and every square inch of space identified with God is guarded thoroughly as part of the Mosaic Covenant. What we will see is we'll see those Ten Commandments, but then we'll see all kinds of law, and we'll see gathering for the tabernacle, and we'll see specificity given to how things are brought together. We'll see God create Bezalel and Aholiabs who are artisans, and they put together the things that are necessary in just the way. You've got to use acacia wood. You've got to overlay it with gold. You've got to have the loops. You don't touch the ark. You use these poles. Someone would find out the holiness of God is no joke by choosing something else. There would be this, this massive ceremony that went on where the priests had to wear specific things made by specific people in specific ways, all for the sake through the Mosaic Covenant of helping us to understand the holiness of God and how far we have fallen from it. A significant thing in the Mosaic Covenant. Here's the deal. When when you pull all these details together, you might be thinking, this sounds great. You might be thinking, what a wonderful plan. I mean... God God is making this individual office corporate. So he calls them a treasured possession. And and in doing so, they should view each other as a treasured possession. There's a closeness. There's a love. There's an attentiveness to one another that is amazing, that's otherwise impossible. He he does that. And then he does, what what was our second thing there? He, He deputizes all of them. He gives them power. And they say, we will do all that the Lord has said We see a people who are brought together, who identify with God, who are a witness to the nations, who are cultivating righteousness, who are consecrating themselves to the law, and who are protecting every square inch that belongs to God so as to uphold holiness. And you might be looking at this going, why do we need a new covenant? This plan is awesome. Why would we need Jesus? If this happens, this is a really wonderful plan. I'm confused about why a new covenant might be needed. And the answer is this, because Israel couldn't do it. Do you hear that this morning? It's, I just outlined what God has shown us is this beautiful plan for them to be a priestly nation. And the reality is, Israel couldn't do it. In that moment where they said, we will do all that the Lord has commanded, when Israel was finally called upon God by God to mediate, when Israel heard his voice, When he tested them from the mountain and they heard his mighty voice, listen to their response in Deuteronomy 5.22, just one page over. Deuteronomy 5.22, listen to their response. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of fire and cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice and he added, no more. Everybody heard that voice. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me. 
And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. It almost sounds like these people are marveling, and they're continuing in that steadfast claim of, We will do everything that he has commanded. But look at what it continues to say. Now, therefore, why should we die? What happened? Something turned here. Why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? You, you Moses... Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and you speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And then we will hear it, and then we will do it. And look at what it says in verse 28. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. If you've ever wondered why We go from this entire nation being deputized as priests, as a priestly nation. Have you ever wondered why we went from that to Aaron and his sons being the priests who made up a priesthood? It's because of these verses. Just like Adam, just like Noah, Israel couldn't do it. And God remained faithful to his purposes. That hit me this week in a way that I've never considered. Why do we have this nation that's going to be priests and then all of a sudden it's boom, a small part of the nation is the priesthood. And why would it last 1,500 years? It's because they could not do it. From this point on, it seemed the priestly nation was kind of put on hold and the priestly duties would be fulfilled through a priesthood. In Exodus 28, we find that Aaron and his sons will serve the nation as priests, interceding for them, mediating for them, taking care of what would be an exhaustingly particular system where sacrifices are brought and laws are sought to be followed but often broken, so there need more and more sacrifices. A system where the priests are uniquely deputized now to teach the people what it meant to be clean, what it meant to be pure, what it meant to be holy, and what it meant to be consecrated to God. These priests would make atonement for sin. They would declare that which was clean and unclean and generally work and keep the sanctuary just as Adam did in the garden. Through them, we would be given a 1,500-year tutor to help us understand the importance of the priestly role that we now in Christ fulfill. It's sobering. It would appear, I mean, if we can just be honest this morning... It would appear from Israel's response that the priestly role can be pretty intimidating, right? I've heard that from a handful of you from last week, like, man, that kind of sounds like a lot. Can y'all just preach? And we'll do, and we'll just, just, can we just leave it? That, that That stuff sounds, I don't know, I've never really thought down that road. That's some of the responses I've heard, and I don't think you're alone. I think you have company with Israel. It would appear from Israel's response that the priestly role can be intimidating. Some of the feedback has been that it can seem abstract at times. It seems hard. 
and it may even be a little bit overwhelming, the thought of being responsible for one another. Some of us here today may be like Israel at the base of Mount Sinai saying, I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure that I can take on such responsibility as is outlined in these priestly roles. I mean, if Israel couldn't, how can I? If Israel couldn't, how can I? I mean, we've already seen it in Exodus 19.8. After being called as a nation of priests, the nation of Israel responded, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But they couldn't. How, how great of a sermon would it be if they could? And I'd be like, if they could do it, you could do it. But they couldn't. They failed. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do up until the Lord spoke and they freaked out. We're going to die. We can't do this. This is too much. Our hope is that at the end of this series, once we have fully explained elder-led congregationalism, our hope is that this congregation would say worshipfully, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's our hope. Our hope is that at the end of this thing, you guys would say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But there's still that nagging question, if Israel couldn't, then how can we? And the answer is Jesus. They didn't have Jesus, and you do. It seems so, like that's so the Sunday school answer. How? Jesus. How is it that they couldn't do it? They didn't have Jesus. They didn't have a perfect priest. They didn't have a perfect king. They didn't have a perfect sacrifice. They didn't have perfect blood. And you do. This is the best news ever. Through faith, we are united to Christ and given an ability. We're given help in the Holy Spirit. We're given a new heart of flesh that we're going to talk about next week through the prophecies that Israel didn't have. Next week, we're going to further explore God's amazing promises and his provision for us and why we could actually say all that the Lord has said we will do and move in it rightly and not freak out the way that Israel did. We are going to explore that thoroughly next week. But this morning, here's what I want to do. This morning, it seems fitting to close by praying together. I want the gathered congregation to pray this morning. Not just me praying over you, but you guys praying By asking God corporately to bless us in this corporate office, that we might fulfill all that he has commanded. Church family, don't tune out, because the enemy would love for you to tune out. Church family, I have never been more aware in 15 years of ministry at Crosspoint how much the enemy would love nothing more than for us to be torn apart, to be confused by these things, than for us to be filled with fear just like Israel. Insecurity, just like Israel. Doubt, just like Israel. For us to be divided in any way possible. The Lord shot me out of bed at 4.30 in the morning last week. The enemy wants to destroy. That's what he does. The enemy wants to destroy. As we consider such important responsibilities as those that come with the office of priest king, we need to remember that our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy would love to make us take lightly the call to guard holiness. Our enemy would love to do nothing more than to make holiness go unguarded as a gathered people. Like, don't take that so seriously. Don't be so gospel. 
There's lots of other things that you could put your time and your energy and your thoughts on. There's other things that you can treasure more than the people of God. Our enemy would love nothing more than for us to take lightly the call to guard holiness. So I think it's fitting for us this morning to do some prayerful battling as a gathered people before we take the supper. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what this looks like. It's not real complicated, so don't overcomplicate it. In a moment, I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads, and I'm going to give some specifics for us to pray about this morning as a gathered people. We are going to take up the full armor of God. We are going to resist the enemy who would love to destroy us, and we are going to pray in the name of Jesus. I'm going to give you specifics to pray for after I open the prayer, and we'll just give maybe 20 or 30 seconds on each of them. And I encourage you to pray. You can pray out loud. You can pray as a family. You can pray as a couple. You can pray as a group. But we are going to pray. Let's go to our Lord. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We say it all the time, and the more we read our Bibles and the more we see your power and your purposes fulfilled through one covenant after another covenant after another another covenant, when, when men fail, you do not Lord, we come before you humbly this morning, begging for your help to fulfill the priestly role that we have with one another, to bind and to loose, to have wisdom when it comes to making sure we are sticking to what the gospel is in its true state, to clearly articulate who the gospel people are because of the way they're living or the way they're not. Lord, this priestly responsibility has intimidated generations before us. And as a gathered people this morning, in Little Hunt County, Little Greenville, we are aware that you are doing something mighty among us. So, Lord, your word says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. And you tell us that you will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ, that you will give us peace that exceeds understanding. Lord, your word also tells us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let them ask without wavering, without doubt. So Lord, as as we come to you in prayer, as a gathered people this morning, I pray that we would not waver. I pray that we would not doubt. I pray that we would not have fear, and I pray that we would boldly ask you for that which we can only get from you. Church body, pray that we would cling to Christ as the head of the church. That we would cling to Christ as the head of the church. Spend a few moments thanking God for what Christ has done for us. Pray that we would not focus only on our individual walk with God, but on our walk as a people.
pray that we would see each other as treasured possessions, that God would show us how to rightly treasure each other as he treasures us. Church family, pray that we would cling to the gospel so that we might rightly bind and loose and love and counsel. Pray that we would understand the power that we have from God in Christ and that we would use that power rightly. Pray that as we identify with God, that we would be a witness to the nations. Pray that people would see how we move and they would come to Christ. Pray that we would cultivate and grow the righteousness of God among ourselves. cultivate and grow the righteousness of God among future generations. And that we would cultivate and grow a righteousness of God among a world that is watching. Pray that there is power in the prayers of your people. I pray that as we're brought low, as we're humbled, that we would be rightly empowered by you. That we would see a great God who, who cares more about this church than any of us do. Who cares more about every local church than any of us do. And who cares more about his kingdom than we do. But I pray that we would see and marvel at what we have in Christ that we would with everything in us humbly and dependent upon you say we will do all that you have commanded 
knowing that in those times we fail, you pick us up and you give people around us to pick us up. Lord, your design is beautiful. You are great and greatly to be praised as we prepare to take the supper, Lord, which is a sign and a reminder of this new covenant, this fulfilled promise in Christ, a better covenant. Lord, we continue to examine ourselves and to just as a church, submit humbly to you.